Two Ways with the Self by C.S. Lewis. Self-renunciation is thought to be, and indeed is, very near the core of Christian ethics. When Aristotle writes in praise of a certain kind of self-love, we may feel, despite the careful distinctions which he draws between the legitimate and the illegitimate self-love, that here we strike something essentially sub-Christian. It is more difficult, however, to decide what we think of St. Francis de Sales' chapter on gentleness towards ourselves, where we are forbidden to indulge resentment even against ourselves, and advised to reprove even our own faults with sweet and gentle remonstrances, feeling more compassion than passion. In the same spirit, Lady Julian of Norwich would have us loving and peaceable, not only to our even Christians, but to ourself. Even the New Testament bids me love my neighbor as myself, which would be a horrible command if the self were simply to be hated. Yet our Lord also says that a true disciple must hate his own life. We must not explain this apparent contradiction by saying that self-love is right up to a certain point and wrong beyond that point. The question is not one of degree. There are two kinds of self-hatred which look rather alike in their earlier stages, but of which one is wrong from the beginning and the other is right to the end. When Shelley speaks of self-contempt as the source of cruelty, or when a later poet says that he has no stomach for the man who loathes his neighbor as himself, they are referring to a very real and very unchristian hatred of the self, which may make diabolical a man whom common selfishness would have left, at least for a while, merely animal. The hard-boiled economist or psychologist of our own day, recognizing the ideological taint or Freudian motive in his own makeup, does not necessarily learn Christian humility. He may end in what is called a low view of all souls, including his own, which expresses itself in cynicism or cruelty, or both. Even Christians, if they accept in certain forms the doctrine of total depravity, are not always free from the danger. The logical conclusion of the process is the worship of suffering, for others as well as for the self, which we see, if I read it aright, in Mr. David Lindsay's voyage to Arcturus, or that extraordinary vacancy which Shakespeare depicts at the end of Richard III. Richard in his agony tries to turn to self-love, but he has been seeing through all emotions so long that he sees through even this. It becomes a mere tautology. Richard loves Richard, that is, I am I. Now the self can be regarded in two ways. On the one hand, it is God's creature, an occasion of love and rejoicing, now indeed hateful in condition, but to be pitied and healed. On the other hand, it is that one self of all others which is called I and me, and which on that ground puts forward an irrational claim to preference. This claim is to be not only hated, but simply killed, never, as George MacDonald says, to be allowed a moment's respite from eternal death. The Christian must wage endless war against the clamor of the ego as ego, but he loves and approves selves as such, though not their sins. The very self-love which he has to reject is to him a specimen of how he ought to feel to all selves, and he may hope that when he has truly learned, which will hardly be in this life, to love his neighbor as himself, he may then be able to love himself as his neighbor, that is, with charity instead of partiality. The other kind of self-hatred, on the contrary, hates selves as such. It begins by accepting the special value of the particular self called me, then, wounded in its pride to find that such a darling object should be so disappointing, it seeks revenge, first upon that self, then on all. Deeply egoistic, but now with an inverted egoism, it uses the revealing argument, I don't spare myself, with the implication, then a fortiori I need not spare others, and becomes like the centurion in Tacitus, imitior quia toleraverat, more relentless because he had endured it himself. The wrong asceticism torments the self, the right kind kills the selfness. We must die daily, but it is better to love the self than to love nothing, and to pity the self than to pity no one. Two Lectures by C.S. Lewis
And so, said the lecturer, I end where I began. Evolution, development, the slow struggle upwards and onwards from crude and inchoate beginnings towards ever-increasing perfection and elaboration, that appears to be the very formula of the whole universe. We see it exemplified in everything we study. The yoke comes from the acorn. The giant express engine of today comes from the rocket. The highest achievements of contemporary art are in a continuous line of descent from the rude scratchings with which the prehistoric man adorned the wall of his cave. What are the ethics and philosophy of civilized man but a miraculous elaboration of the most primitive instincts and savage taboos? Each one of us has grown through slow prenatal stages in which we were at first more like fish than mammals, from a particle of matter too small to be seen. Man himself springs from beasts, the organic from the inorganic. Development is the key word. The march of all things is from lower to higher. None of this, of course, was new to me or to anyone else in the audience, but it was put very well, much better than it appears in my reproduction, and the whole voice and figure of the lecturer were impressive. At least they must have impressed me, for otherwise I cannot account for the curious dream I had that night. I dreamed that I was still at the lecture, and the voice from the platform was still going on, but it was saying all the wrong things. At least it may have been saying the right things up to the very moment at which I began attending, but it certainly began going wrong after that. What I remembered on waking went like this. Appears to be the very formula of the whole universe. We see it exemplified in everything we study. The acorn comes from a full-grown oak. The first crude engine, the rocket, comes not from a still cruder engine, but from something much more perfect than itself and much more complex, the mind of a man and a man of genius. The first prehistoric drawings come not from earlier scratchings, but from the hand and brain of human beings, whose hand and brain cannot be shown to have been in any way inferior to our own. And indeed it is obvious that the man who first conceived the idea of making a picture must have been a greater genius than any of the artists who have succeeded him. The embryo with which the life of each one of us began did not originate from something even more embryonic. It originated from two fully developed human beings, our parents. Descent, downward movement, is the key word. The march of all things is from higher to lower. The rude and imperfect thing always springs from something perfect and developed. I did not think much of this while I was shaving, but it so happened that I had no ten o'clock pupil that morning, and when I had finished answering my letters I sat down and reflected on my dream. It appeared to me that the dream lecturer had a good deal to be said for him. It is true that we do see all round us things growing up to perfection from small and rude beginnings, but then it is equally true that the small and rude beginnings themselves always come from some full-grown and developed thing. All adults were once babies, true, but then all babies were begotten and born by adults. Corn does come from seed, but then seed comes from corn. I could even give the dream lecturer an example he had missed. All civilizations grow from small beginnings, but when you look into it, you always find that those small beginnings themselves have been dropped, as an oak drops an acorn, by some other and mature civilization. The weapons and even the cookery of old Germanic barbarism are, so to speak, driftwood from the wrecked ship of Roman civilization. The starting point of Greek culture is the remains of older Minoan cultures, supplemented by oddments from civilized Egypt and Phoenicia. But in that case, thought I, what about the first civilization of all? As soon as I asked this question, I realized that the dream lecturer had been choosing his examples rather cautiously. He had talked only about things we can see going on around us. He had kept off the subject of absolute beginnings. He had quite correctly pointed out that in the present and in the historical past, we see imperfect life coming from perfect just as much as vice versa. But he hadn't even attempted to answer the real lecturer about the beginnings of all life. The real lecturer's view was that when you got back far enough, back into those parts of the past which we know less about, you would find an absolute beginning, and it would be something small and imperfect. That was a point in favor of the real lecturer. He at least had a theory about the absolute beginning, whereas the dream lecturer had slurred it over. But hadn't the real lecturer done a little slurring too? He had not given us a hint that his theory of the ultimate origins involved us in believing that nature's habits have, since those days, altered completely. Her present habits show us an endless cycle, the bird coming from the egg and the egg from the bird. 
but he asked us to believe that the whole thing had been started with an egg which had been preceded by no bird. Perhaps it did, but the whole prima facie plausibility of his view, the ease with which the audience accepted it as something natural and obvious, depended on his slurring over the immense difference between this and the processes we actually observe. He put it over by drawing our attention to the fact that eggs develop into birds, and making us forget that birds lay eggs. Indeed, we have been trained to do this all our lives, trained to look at the universe with one eye shut. Developmentalism is made to look plausible by a kind of trick. For the first time in my life I began to look at the question with both eyes open. In the world I know, the perfect produces the imperfect, which again becomes perfect. Egg leads to bird and bird to egg, in endless succession. If there ever was a life which sprang of its own accord out of a purely inorganic universe, or a civilization which raised itself by its own shoulder straps out of pure savagery, then this event was totally unlike the beginnings of every subsequent life and every subsequent civilization. The thing may have happened, but all its plausibility is gone. On any view, the first beginning must have been outside the ordinary processes of nature. An egg which came from no bird is no more natural than a bird which had existed from all eternity. And since the egg-bird-egg sequence leads us to no plausible beginning, is it not reasonable to look for the real origin somewhere outside the sequence altogether? You have to go outside the sequence of engines into the world of men to find the real originator of the rocket. Is it not equally reasonable to look outside nature for the real originator of the natural order? <laughs>